there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. All right, welcome to another rant. We have a guest with us today from the West Coast. We thought we'd stop being typical Torontonians and thinking we're the center of the universe and let some more voices on the show. Welcome, Matt. You want to introduce yourself to folks? Uh, yeah. Hi, Jessa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Santiago. Um, I'm name's Matt Kircher. I'm a BC born and raised from the West Coast, a political activist, a political commentator. You know what? I'm really, really happy to be here. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy to, to speak a little bit about what we're speaking about today. And that's going to be electoral reform. So when we invite guests on from around Canada, we want them to bring something that they're particularly passionate about. Teach us something, perhaps. Maybe we can argue with them a little bit. And so, Matt, what makes you kind of focus on electoral form as a point of disruption? The reason I am really, really passionate about electoral reform is I'm really, really passionate about fairness in politics. Electoral reform takes politics from this uh, almost untouchable realm and brings it into this realm where everyone's vote directly impacts the political realm. Right now, under our current system, which many of your listeners will be familiar with, it's not a one vote, you win system. It's not a uh, it's not a uh, 50 plus one system. You can win a riding with 25% of the vote in this country and get sent to Ottawa. I don't think that's the way we should be doing things. Um, I don't think that uh, represents the interests of voters in this country. Uh, and I don't think it leads to sustainable policy in this country either. Folks in Ontario know exactly what you're talking about. We live under a false majority where, you know, the popular vote isn't with who is ruling us. So more people actually voted against Doug Ford than for him, but he has, you know, essentially absolute power here. And it's the primary beef I think people have with electoral reform. Now, most of us are, oh wait, Matt, are you an NDPer? Were you ever? Can I call you a reformed NDPer? You could, you could, I would, I usually term myself as a leftist in Canadian politics. Uh, I kind of float between the NDP and the Greens. Um, it's usually very candidate-dependent, leadership-dependent. Uh, right now, I would say I'm fairly politically homeless. I lean towards the Green Party, but don't get me wrong, I have problems with them as well. I got my start in in electoral politics, I guess, with the Green Party uh, through frustrations of the NDP and then through frustrations of the Green Party, I left. I think if I was in BC, that... I mean, I, I would definitely, uh, if I had to choose between the evils, it'd be more green than NDP. But I guess my issue when it comes to electoral reform, it's actually not so much to do. I mean, it is to do with the, you know, the ballots and the system we use. But I think my bigger issue happens way before we ever get to that stage, which is internal party structures which for me are very undemocratic. You know, how exactly do we get the names that we even get a chance to vote for? What's going on before we ever get to put an X on a ballot, you know? And to me, even if you change the system to be, you know, and you know, first past the post ranked ballot, proportional representation, you know, block, whatever the system is, without reforming the party structures, it's still an incredibly undemocratic system. Yeah, like for you, Matt, does electoral reform encompass more than just how we tabulate the votes, how we determine the winner of the election every four years? Because I think most people's biggest beef with any election is the influence of money, or at least it's mine. Maybe I'm speaking just for myself here. I doubt it, though. It, not just in the campaigns itself, but then whoever's in office, the influence they have through lobbying and whatnot. And I'm just wondering, you know, electoral reform, how all-encompassing are these changes that we're looking at? Because right now I'm just like smash the system, rebuild. I feel like electoral reform is maneuvering pieces within the same 
system. And that's the other thing with electoral reform. There's so many visions. There's so many versions. Mm-hmm. And so what's, what's your kind of vision of electoral reform that you think can be applied here in Canada? Yeah, so uh, to, to Santiago's point, um, it is bigger than just uh, tabulating votes, and to your point as well, it, it would um, impact party democracy as well. Uh, I am a proponent, I'm going to get a little wonky here, but I'm a proponent of a specific system. Uh, It's called MMP, Mixed Member Proportional. It's the one that you'll often hear uh, the NDP when they decide to talk about electoral reform. It's the one they will tout. Um, Part of the reason I am really, really into that system is you can design it in a way so that uh, the the, uh, proportional part of your voting is an open list. So getting into that that party democracy that the parties are picking these people for you to choose before we even get that choice. Oh, we know all about that. Yeah, exactly. You have an MMP system. Those parties have to put up, an, uh, with an open list, sorry, those parties have to put up at least uh, like five to ten additional candidates. And you get to pick those candidates. You get to, so if you're voting for, say, I want to vote for the NDP, I'm going to go, I'm casting my main vote for the NDP in my in my riding in that portion of the ballot. The second portion of the ballot is a more is uh, where the proportionality will be divvied up. But the second portion of the ballot, that is where all the parties would have to list all their next candidates. And you would get to rank those candidates. And when the proportionality is divvied up, when they're tabulating the votes, those candidates there, the candidates with the most amount or the highest ranked candidates there, they're the first ones that get those proportionally allotted seats. So... When we're talking about party democracy and it's saying like, oh, well, this one person is running in this one riding. I don't really like that person. I don't really want to vote for them. That party's not going to get my vote now. In this new system, in this MMP system, you would have an option for multiple people running for that party, which you would get to pick to represent you. It's almost like a blending of that party democracy into the general election. You see, for me, you're using really bad examples because I'm still stuck with an NDP MP. For me, I've advocated for electoral reform many times. So I'm going to sound like maybe devil's advocate a little bit because we've had so many discussions, Santiago, here on the show where we're trying to figure out how this is going to work, how this is going to work. And then we're like, oh, we have to change the system, right? Like that won't work in this current circumstance. It's great, but these folks won't go for it, right? And I think that's the situation we're now in Canadian politics where there's no party that exists that I would care what share that they had. I honestly am not hopeful of a better future. And so the hope that I do hold in electoral politics is the hope that lies for fringe parties, Mm -hmm. like the ones we talk about creating in the absence of a decent one here. So because we know first past the post, what we use here, it it really favors the brokerage parties, right? The liberals, the conservatives, the big names that have already done the spending. So everyone knows they're the only two options, you know, you know, that's sarcasm, I suppose. But and then it it really discourages small parties from coming up because that's going to take a lot of spending, a lot of resources to get first past the post. So you don't have that outlier's chance of even being the kind of the one voice in parliament. I don't know. For Santiago, when I told you we were going to talk about electoral reform, you were kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I can rant about that. Do you think we're getting there? Getting to electoral reform? Yeah, like better yet, do you think a decent amount of electoral reform, you know, kind of the well-rounded one that hits on the issues you were talking about as well mm-hmm. as the one that Matt's hitting home, would that hit on all the other issues that we've done? Would that would that give us the solutions we've been looking for? I think at best it's something that can make the work easier, but it's still not, you know, the answer to our larger issues, right? I mean, it, first you ask, you know, like, are, are, are we getting to it? Um, and the answer has nothing to do with what people actually want, right? Because, I mean, ideally, under a democratic system, what the public cares about would mean something, anything at all, to the decisions that are actually made. But we, like, I mean, we've seen countless studies that it actually doesn't matter at all what the public wants. It affects very little of the outcome of what actually gets done in in governments, right? So for there to be an electoral reform, it would have to be something that would benefit the rich, the powerful, the people making the decisions. And right now they don't see any benefit to that whatsoever because it gives them absolute power. So no, I don't think we're going to get electoral reform anytime soon. And the question is, under this system, how how would we even force the hand of the government to do so? I mean, it would take a mass movement and and 
And people are right now are are so frustrated and drowning from so many overlapping issues that they don't have the energy to to try and and, and fix the system. They need their immediate concerns met. So I, I I think that if anything, you know, when back in 2015, this was something that people were talking a lot more about. I think Justin Trudeau got elected partially off of. The idea, I know a lot of people who voted for him because he said that he would change the system to proportional representation, you know? I think back then there were a lot more conversations. I think we're way further away from this being a central topic today than we were back then. But I'm going to go to you, Matt, because BC was teased with it, right? You folks were actually given the choice. And, and Santiago's right. Most people do support the idea of electoral reform. And referendums always, there's so many issues surrounding them that you know you haven't really gotten the full picture from the results, which is the same with our elections, right? Let's be real. But, you know, what was that like? Like, is that perhaps did you get a, a get close to electoral reform in BC? Oh, so uh, we have been close to electoral reform in BC in the past. Um, a referendum in BC has actually passed in, uh, for electoral reform in BC. Uh, I believe off the top of my head, it was back in 2005. Um, it did receive a 50 plus one vote, uh, but the way the Gordon Campbell liberals designed it was they needed 60% to pass the referendum and therefore the referendum failed and we didn't get electoral reform in BC. Since then, it's been tried again twice. You talk about that like it's a historical record. How you didn't experience that, though, right? I didn't. I didn't experience that. No, or at least I was. I was too young in my political life to really experience it. Um, I, I kind of came up into politics in like the early 2010s and stuff like that. That's when I really started getting involved around my my high school, later high school years, and stuff like that. But no. Uh, so we did have that recent one back in 2017. It was not close. Uh, but I don't believe that is a representation of uh, the populace's desire for electoral reform. I think that desire still remains. Um, you saw it in Ontario immediately after the re-election of Doug Ford. Um, there was a lot of people that you saw the support uh, for electoral reform jump in Ontario immediately after his election. So it does usually take some sort of catalyst like that to get it in the news. But once it is in the news, people do care about it. The problem with what, what, with what happened in BC was the referendum was run very, very poorly. Um, and this kind of gets to what you guys were saying, which is the people that we have in power right now are not that interested in electoral reform. The BC NDP was happy to use it as a rhetorical tool. The coal baron John Horgan was happy to use it as a rhetorical tool. And then uh, when the campaign came around, there were no maps, no writing maps for people to envision what the electoral reform would look like. There were no ballot examples so people could see what their ballot would look like afterward. John Horgan's big selling point was uh, PR is lit in an online or in a televised debate with with John Wil with Wilkinson. So like there wasn't ever really besides the BC Greens a unified front pushing for electoral reform. It was almost like we were working against the BC Liberals and the BC NDP while rhetorically in favor of it were not providing the tools necessary to win that referendum. I am a proponent of no referendum. I don't want a referendum. I think we need to just get PR. We need to have a leader um, or a, some sort of, there needs to be someone who gets in a position of power. If it's something they care about, they have to just do it. They can't. You sound like a tyrant. They can't be screwing around <laughs> yet. No, 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 no. Like we could, you, if you want to build in, no, seriously, if you want to build in a referendum, like two years down the road or something like that, after or two election cycles down the road where people have had a chance to, uh, work with the new system and understand it, that's fine. But to implement the system right away for the betterment of our democracy, if you're elected on a, or on a platform of running for electoral reform, do the electoral reform. Don't beat around the bush. Don't do these referendums. If you were elected on that in your platform, do it. I, I guess my question is, how would we, how would the public know when such a case would come around? Because I think people have believed in the past that they were voting for someone who was going to do something like that, you know, like such as Justin Trudeau. The reality is that for the public, it's very difficult to tell the, the genuine motivations of politicians. I mean, even here in Toronto, like with Olivia Chow is a good example of someone who there were a lot of expectations of what of progress that 
we're seeing already is not going to happen, right? So for people who aren't day in, day out consuming politics like we are, how would they know when that came around? That's the same with every politician. You know, they have a mandate that's not really a mandate. But, you you know, you pick that winner. Matt has a point there. You know, you pick the winner. They get kind of carte blanche. But to, to Matt, though, there are, like, steps beyond a referendum. Because, like, in Canadian politics, we know referendums are really just a way of pretending that you ask people and then doing what you really wanted to do anyway. And the manipulation of process that goes on around it is often so ridiculous. The Quebec referendum was one of them. And so we don't do them well. They are a tool for direct democracy, so I'm not going to slam them. But I mean, there are so many examples of folks even doing things that weren't in their mandates. And so, I mean, you really do, I think, need somebody to get up there and, and do something. But you have consultations because it's like, what version what does it include? What doesn't it include? And, mm-hmm. you know, if you read the NDP policy book, they don't even have a vision of what it looks like at all. I'm going to read. It says this is all they have. I, I, I did not cut any of it out. Their position on electoral reform is ensuring electoral reform is based on a transparent process with wide citizen involvement. That is the goal of almost any policy. Like you may not have a referendum where every citizen has a vote, but you do have like panels and you have processes where legislation is passed and people get to go before committees and make amendments or suggest amendments and give input to policy. So like our democracy, in quotation still, has points of input for people. But I think that's one of the bigger issues in selling electoral reform is no one look knows exactly what it looks like. Because one, that varies from person to person's opinion. And we've not really been exposed to a lot of it. Although, did you know, maybe y'all did, I did not, that none of it uses consensus within their provincial house. So they don't use traditional voting methods within their legislature. They use consensus building, right? Like they've got to use discussion and compromise and come to a solution that everybody goes along with. So there are so many forms of reform that can be applied within the Canadian system, but not not one, Right. And so, like, how do you campaign on something, especially federally, and get this one vision out there? Because that's not really been done. Even Fair Vote Canada doesn't really solidify their position on exactly what it looks like. And it's very their campaigns are often very focused just on that vote and voter outcome. And they don't address like the other issues that we know underline the problem with politics. Right. That money process. But yeah, absolutely. Um uh, so the the way I would kind of address that, at least the the overarching, like what do we, what do we present? Like what are we campaigning on? How do we get people to to kind of click into this? And how do we decide on what exactly that reform is going to look like? While I don't support the referendum, like that's kind of how the BCNDP tried to do it. They put up three systems in the referendum to vote on, and then had people say, "Pick your favorite." But that's Greek to most people. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I, the amount of times, the amount of conversations I had just explaining what the systems were, not even getting into how they were better or different, just what they were, what they would look like was astounding. I think the better solution in this case is to like, say, if I'm a political, like a, I'm running a campaign, I'm running on a platform, I'm going to run on a promise of, of electoral reform to a proportional representation system. And I'm going to promise that that system is going to be decided upon by citizens assembly, randomly selected Canadian citizens assembly. That's how it was done in 2005 in BC. That's how they came up uh, with the STV system here. That wouldn't be my preferred system. But at the end of the day, any PR system is better than what we have currently. So if it's going to get us a step closer to what to what we where we need to be, I'm going to take that step. I'm not going to to, to argue about the details, the 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 minor details on the edge cases of these different systems. If we get a PR system, that's better. Uh, once you have that citizens assembly and that form of PR, you can then start to produce educational materials for the general public, stuff like that. What, like I said, the example ballots, the example writings, how your vote is going to transfer, that sort of stuff. And then when we're talking about outside of the, the voting system and getting the money out of politics and stuff like that, that one's tougher. It, it honestly is. Uh, because our politics in this liberal democracy have been dominated by these big money interests and because these big money interests have been allowed to gain so much traction, it is going to be hard to to prevent that sort of money in there. I guess my best 
answer for that would be is that if we do have a electoral reform system, and this goes back to a little bit what we were talking about before as well, it's going to be easier for those fringe parties that we were talking about to earn their way into the political system, to make their way into the political system. And if we want to take money out of politics, we can use the internal democracy in these fringe parties to at least subtract the big money out from them and the big influence out from them and use them as our vehicle into electoral politics. Of course, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of organizing. I would never stand to say, stand up and say PR is the end all be all. I kind of like how Santiago phrased it. It's a tool. It makes things easier for us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think like Santiago kind of brought me back into the fold a little bit with that comment that I was like, I'll, I'm willing to still advocate for it. But, poor, you know, having to judge how much resources you put into something that we made the point that how do you get it done if none of the current parties want to do it, right? That means like everything else we talk about, massive push from the populace. So it's like chicken and the egg. Where does that start until they experience it? And those fringe parties that might bring it around, they're not there yet. And even though they benefit from it, but it's those fringe parties and that benefit that tells me what I already know, that the NDP would never put any kind of resources into electoral reform simply because it opens the door for the parties to compete with them. And they have decimated themselves so much that they are almost a fringe party themselves. And so it would be quite easy to usurp that position on the left by a genuine grassroots leftist party. Mm -hmm. And that scares the bejesus out of them, obviously, because they cash their paychecks on being that um, other people because they're the only option. Well, once you stop being that only option, they're not going to have any game plan whatsoever. I honestly kind of believe, too, um, that the the CASA deal uh, that the NDP signed, the reason that electoral reform was not part of that CASA deal is exactly what you are talking about. Because when you hook your ship to the Liberals, a sinking ship in and of itself, your left flank of that part of, of the NDP is going to start getting a little a little bit uh, cautious, right? A little bit, I don't really want to be in this situation. And then when you go through and do that without really getting anything else in the deal and electoral reform is not there, well, I'm going to have some concerns. But I think I've kind of come around to that same position where you are, which is that the, the NDP are simply not interested in this policy because it is going to be detrimental to their power. And the NDP, just like the Liberals, primarily is a party concerned with power over policy. Yeah. I, and I would say that that's the case by design of uh, of all of the parties. Oh, yeah. And one thing... By the system. Yeah. One thing I had to mention, too, though, because electoral reform, we, we see how our democracy isn't working. So we look at this issue and we say, you know, like, if we change this, we get money out of politics. We can have better representation. But there is also another issue. Money in media is money in politics. Yes. You know, as long as we have private media and we're not funding, publicly funding journalism, then we, even if we changed electoral reform, that would be another issue right there because then manufacturing consent, you know, we, we know we would only hear about certain candidates the media would sway public opinion in certain directions and that would still be money in politics one way so there's there's a lot of battles to fight here if the goal is to you know like have a an actual democracy right i love how we always just come around to revolution i was gonna say isn't that that's just kind of the socialist cause of trying to make our democracy fairer (laughs) no (laughs) yeah but but that's the thing is that there's there's so many haven't uh, there's so many aspects to this right that like if the goal is that if the goal is you know living in a democracy we have a lot of battles to fight and i just don't know how we're gonna i guess i I was more hopeful about some of those battles before but now i i don't know i I feel like in this current moment it's looking very difficult and then and also uh just on the word of referendums you know because uh, I'm going to bring another personal experience. Uh, Colombia had a big controversial referendum a few years ago, the peace vote, you know, whether or not to, you know, negotiate peace with the FARC. That referendum was lost. And that's an absurd concept because, you know, the people overwhelmingly wanted peace. But the power of media and the power of, well, the power of Uribistas and those in power was was so strong that they got the public to vote they convinced the public to vote no on something that they actively wanted, which 
is part of what scared you know like i'm a big fan of direct democracy but that's also what i mean like there you had an, an avenue of like direct democracy and the powers of media o- overwhelmed that for something so obvious that people were desperate you know so I don't, I don't know what i'm asking i don't know where i'm going with this i'm just i guess i'm pessimistic today but well maybe i can absolve your pessimism a little bit then because like like what we're doing right here right like your podcast blueprints of disruption things like breach media um those those independent outlets are the way we are going to fight that battle i think we're coming to a point uh at least in contemporary history now where people are starting to kind of question narratives coming out of the media. You Like, it started after Iraq, and since then, there has been more questioning of official narratives coming out from, from these major media organizations. Now, sometimes that's not a good thing. Sometimes that gets you something like Donald Trump in the U.S., but it is good that people do not hold the same amount of trust that they used to have in these areas. Because let's be real, the media has never been feeding you the official line. Going back in history, the media has lied to the populace to suit a government narrative on multiple occasions. So to have this kind of erosion of trust might lead to a better media literacy. And it's also going to lead to growth in independent outlets like this one and like uh, like the breach and stuff like that. I'm not grinning because, you know, you're bigging up our show. I'm grinning because you gave me the perfect segue to our next topic when you're talking about questioning the narrative and the media selling a certain line and it enraging us because, I mean, we're on rabble rants because we're going to talk about immigration and housing, but not in the way that you have seen the typical media talk about it. Obviously, we're not typical media. But holy shit, Santiago. I mean, we started talking about it a couple weeks ago. You could kind of smell it brewing. Not that there isn't xenophobia fucking all the time. See, now I'm getting upset. (sighs) Okay. We see racism and fear of immigrants like pop its head up all the time when it comes to different issues. But I think we can all agree it's hit a different level right now. You know, trying to pull some notes, as I do. And the CBC, our public broadcaster, is chock full of the stuff. From international students to the housing, I mean, all kinds of different angles. But for the past few weeks, they have just been pumping out what you could call anti-immigrant rhetoric. And that's the CBC. We, we don't have to talk about the National Post, but if folks take a look, I mean, it's disgusting what they're printing right now. I'll link you to something there. But I mean, it's basically saying all Canadians think immigration is destroying Canada And polls are unfortunately not looking good either. And I know polls can be misleading as well. Sometimes the questions can be leading or lack of options, uh, choices. But, you know, you got 75% of Canadians right now that are essentially blaming immigrants for our housing crisis. What the fuck? I think what's infuriating about that is that I feel like when you use examples of what scapegoating in politics is, you often cite, you know, blaming immigrants for problems. <laughs> like that, that's like the example of this is what scapegoating is. And we're seeing it happen right now where somehow, even though we all know that immigrants always get blamed, it's still working. And it's working not only with people on the right, but I'm seeing a lot of people who should be allies, who should be comrades saying this. And... I'm, I'm, I, I cannot stress enough how fucking pissed off I am about that. First of all, I'm an immigrant. I, I'm a citizen, but I am an immigrant. Uh, I was born in Colombia. And I, I go to Humber College, which is one of the campuses. I go to North Campus of Humber College, where it's one of the campuses that has the most international students. I know a lot of international students. My best friend, who is a graduate of Humber College right now, it, his uh, status is set to expire in September. And we're, I'm desperately trying to figure out ways to keep him in the country. So, you know, th- these aren't numbers. These are real people. And they don't have any blame for what's going on. What we're not asking is, you know, when immigrants contribute more per capita to the economy than non-immigrants, when immigrant, when, when humans are a resource and not a cost of resources. The question is, because there is definitely a hint of truth to the argument, because that's what's making it effective, is the housing crisis somewhat tied to immigrants? Yes. 
But why? Because when the waves of Italian and Portuguese immigrants were coming to Canada, they weren't contributing to a housing crisis. No, they built half these fucking cities. They built Toronto. A lot of immigrants still built the city. Yeah. So why is it? And nobody's talking about the why. Why is it that a rise in immigration is contributing to the housing crisis? Why is it that we have a scarcity? Why is it we can't seem to turn these immigrants into houses? Because immigrants can build houses too. For every leftist who thinks that this is an issue, you are a fucking fool. And I'm sorry, like, usually I'm much kinder, but you are absolutely being fooled here. And you need to do a hell of a lot more research because there's a lot more behind this issue. Absolutely. Because then people are just breaking it down to like a supply and demand issue. And I'll be frank, if you've read the Toronto Star article that was put out by uh, Saeed Hassan and another co-author, I will link it there. I apologize for forgetting the names, but they did a really good job of actually smashing some of the numbers that folks are using that are convincing leftists. So I want to go through them a little bit for folks that maybe won't take the time to read it. And I get it. We'll, we'll get into like the xenophobia and how shit that is and how dependent we are on migrants of all sorts for our labor market. Like we exploit their labor. We exploit international students. We've talked about that before, but let's talk about immigrants and housing. So they're framing every number of, of people that are coming over as needing a home, as though they don't come over in households, as though they don't come over and live with family, as though some of those people are not on visas that have been transferred into permanent residence, right? The, the numbers are so misleading. And the folks in that Toronto Star article, they really break it down some more in terms of what is the impact of the immigration numbers on housing itself. Because although it seems like an influx and it's been painted like a flood, we often use uh, natural disaster language around this for a reason, but it's actually a planned increase that once you kind of compensate for the changes that happened because of COVID restrictions, it still was like just 50,000 people a year new to Canada, like actually coming and weren't already here and just changing status. And those aren't all houses and not all of them even needed housing. And so the numbers they're throwing at you are just almost pure bullshit, really. One of the stats that they gave I thought was interesting. It was like between a third and a half of new permanent residents are not new arrivals needing new housing at all. So when I say some, it was like between a third and a half of folks, those numbers that they're using already live here in housing. And we've talked about international students and migrant workers and the housing that they actually live in is like rooming houses or barns or homes where, you know, eight to 10 people are living, all sleeping on the floor together. And they aren't the threat in the rental market that they're being painted as. It's absolutely ridiculous. I, I get frustrated that this paint is painted as a problem with immigration. Like we have a housing crisis in this country. That's true. High immigration numbers do lead to less housing. It, it, there is some some fact, like Santiago said there. But the focus is fucked. Like, the focus should not be on the immigration. We've been in a housing crisis for decades now. Why is the focus not on the housing crisis? Build more fucking houses! That's that's where the issue comes from. It's not... And, like, if you want to be a leftist and, and, and talk about immigration and stuff like that, I think there are some areas we can have some criticism. Like, you could go out and criticize the Temporary Foreign Workers Program. I think that program really, really endangers like people coming to this country. And I think it would be better if we just rolled it into the main immigration program. Give these people, give people coming to this country who want to work also the same rights as every other citizen so they can't be singled out. Yeah, easily exploited, singled yeah. out by those companies. Yeah, um, first of all, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, uh, the United Nations literally called it a modern day form of slavery. Like, it's... One of the most fucked up exploitative things I've ever heard. I was just uh, on vacation in Colombia and I was telling people about it and they could not believe that such a thing exists in a country like Canada. Um, it, it it sounds so absurd when you hear the specifics behind it. But yeah, no, status for all is absolutely necessary. One of the reasons we're, we have a crisis here is because we're putting chains on immigrants, mig what, what chains... At the minute they get here, say, for example, you're an international student, you know, 
first of all, you're being lied to about what kind of opportunity there is here half the time, right? Many of them, you know, you hear stories of of, of people where their family sells their farms to be able to pay the absurd tuition prices that we charge international students to get the uh, diplomas or degrees that end up not actually leading to, to job opportunities. Now, the family literally bet the farm with the idea that they'll be able to make that money back through living in Canada and send it back. But that's the farthest thing from reality. So then you're, you're in this position where these international students are graduating in, 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 in a horrible financial position. And then they're expected to somehow, I mean, they're fighting for their status. So they have to take whatever opportunity they can. Jobs for them mean they get to get their PR. So they're accepting all kinds of exploitative jobs to be able to stay in the country. So then you're putting people in a position where are, are they making the decisions that are best for themselves? Because when people make the decisions that are the best for themselves, it benefits all of us. But when you're forcing people into these precarious situations, it fucks over the economy. So when you have a growing economy with more and more migrants who are in more and more exploitative positions, yeah, no fuck, we're all going to feel the problems with that because it's not good for any of us. Having a second class citizenry in this country, like that's it benefits a very, very small amount of people. If people are not talking, if people are talking right now that migrants are a problem, but we're not talking about status for all, then you're not talking about the right thing. Yeah, because I want to be careful that although everything everyone is saying is completely true and we know that immigrants to this country have it a lot harder than folks with full status and all of these issues are true. But I want to be careful that we don't then focus on immigrants when we're discussing this and their precarious situation and what they need to live fuller lives here in Canada because it still feels like an us versus, not us versus them, but an us and them. And again, it moves away from the fact that the issue is housing and investors control housing. There's no mincing those words. It was just released that some cities are seeing up to 90% of new new home builds being bought by investors. 90%. There's places in Newfoundland where the entire stock of housing... 42% of it is owned by investors. I'm going to link the article that gives you a lot of that data. It's horrific to see the increase that that's happened as well. And so just like everything in capitalism, just like every industry out there, it is a supply and demand, but it is not controlled by the bottom. It's controlled at the top. They decide, developers and investors decide how many houses are fucking built, even when we entice them. <laughs> we can give them all the re GSD rebates in the world. But if that's going to influence their bottom line in the end, if those rebates don't actually make the profits that they need, they're not going to make more houses than we need or enough houses who supplies enough for everybody when everyone can't afford it? No. You know, we see farmers throwing out potatoes to make sure that the crop stays at a certain price. I'm sorry. This also happens with housing. Yeah. And I, I want to address that real quick because, um, you know, people throw around terms like supply and demand. But whenever we're talking about essential goods and services, supply and demand does not function like it does in a non-essential market. You can charge whatever the fuck you want for an essential good because people need it to survive. Housing will, if, if it's going to put an absolute strain on someone, they have to pay it. It doesn't matter because they need a roof over their head, right? With that system, is it beneficial for these developers to build enough housing? No, of course not, because they can keep charging. As long as there's a scarcity of housing, they can keep inflating these prices way more than should ever occur if something was regulated by supply and demand. Like we like to think that the world works that way. Developers have all the power anyways, right? We know that they own all of our municipal governments. No one puts more money into municipal politics than developers. So why on earth having all of that power, having the ability to change whatever they want in municipal politics, are they not changing the zoning bylaws to be able to build as much housing as is needed? Why are they creating this scarcity? We all know what the answer is there. It is profitable for the rich and powerful for us to have a housing crisis. So we're not going to solve the housing crisis by just hoping for the market to fix things. It is absurd. And I love how it's gone from like this 
acknowledgement that it was investors causing the problem. We called them foreign investors, right? We, we, we particularly singled out foreign investors as though they were the only people buying up new builds to make profit. And I'm from my perspective, every capitalist, it doesn't matter what dirt I don't care what passport you hold. To me, it makes no difference at all. But we were there. I feel like we were there. And then that slipped to just, we left the foreign part in it and just started blaming every newcomer to Canada for the fact that we didn't have homes, even though we understood that this was happening. Because since 2020, investors have really slowed down on their investments in new homes. They are cre- they are exasperating this crisis. So in 2020, we were already in a housing crisis, right? Like there's no denying that. And during that time, they started building fewer homes, investing in fewer builds. And so they are controlling this situation because we knew in 2020 exactly how many immigrants we would be taking in. Most of our refugee intake has a quota and a set that is known. It's it's not that drastic of a change. It's so easy for everyone to just grab that popular rhetoric and spin it and scapegoat it. And it's not just the media, right? Like Pierre Pliev. That's going to be a fun one for the next while. I mean, he's even said like, I can't single him out because the immigration minister is nodding along saying he'd totally consider tying immigration quotas to the houses being built. And you bet your bottom dollar they're not just going to increase the house is being built because with an understanding that we actually require immigration. We have always required immigration in Canada to suit our thirst for growth, to balance out our labor. You know, most of it is exploited. Well, all labor is really exploited, but our policies have always been inherently very racist. And I think we've had a few Supreme Court rulings that have just made it clear that our immigration policies, it's becoming harder and harder to be openly racist. And so now we're just resorting to shifting away from that. Yay, we're multicultural. Canada celebrate that to literally pointing at uh, newcomers as a to a problem that we've had forever. Right. We're a nation of of immigrant settlers, but immigrant continuously. And, and they're treated as some sort of fringe part of the population that's just suddenly coming. But I mean, they make up almost one in four of us now. Right. So they I mean, Santiago, my dad, they are us. It's, if, if you're talking about one quarter of your population, you can't look to them as the problem. <laughs> Just because some of their family members are coming over and, and, you know, it's just that constant flow of immigration that we've always had. This is this is our makeup. So this is absolutely deciding that they aren't going to solve the housing problem and they are going to make sure that we have somebody to blame for it. And this is going to ramp up and it's going to really influence our next federal election. Like it is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. And historically, Canada has like even though we are a nation of immigrants, we have not historically been friendly to immigrants. BC in particular has some pretty horrid history when it comes to particularly Asian immigration to BC. We can go, I want to go back for a second and talk about uh, the foreign home buyers tax because you said that the, it should have just been a, it should have just been a home buyers tax. If you're buying a home over a certain price or something of that, put a tax on it. Or you have an extra home and you're just buying an extra home, put a tax on it. Why did it have to be a foreign home buyers tax? Well, because in BC, when you say it's foreign, it's it's going to invoke these xenophobic ideas that people have here. And it's an easy it's easier to kind of I think they did it to kind of push it past the developers in a way, in a sense. But it just uh, it, it leads into exactly what we are seeing now. Like it never goes away. It's 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 gone from they've managed to transform it from we don't have enough housing problem to uh, there's too many people coming to this country problem. But the, the, there's such a disconnect there. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I grew up uh, in an Italian neighborhood and there's a, a story you hear from pretty much every Italian family, which was, you know, we came here $5 in our pocket, didn't have anything, landed, you know, on a boat with no, no idea what we we're doing and we built a life here and we built this city. You hear Italians talk very proudly about that that kind of reality where somebody can come here with nothing and find prosperity doesn't exist anymore and it doesn't exist by design because we are putting all of these requirements on people trying to come over that that are holding like i said it's holding them back from day one right why are we not bringing in people to work construction why are we not you know why why are we not bringing in people to work labor jobs 
trades. You know, why are we trying? Like, that is part of what is holding us back here. Why are we not a country where somebody can come here with $5 and expect a certain standard of living? Because all of those families, they ended up in quote-unquote middle-class lifestyles, send all their kids to university, and, you know, they're like your typical Canadian family. Why is that not the reality anymore? Because you see the situation right now with people coming over and you hear about these these rooming houses where five people are sleeping in one bedroom because that's the only thing they can afford and they're working whatever shit job they can get and it's barely enough to survive that is not that is a decision policy decision i i want to hit on that because i think a lot of folks are going to hear that and they've heard it that generational thing you know back in my day i didn't need to graduate was able to buy a house like the housing market has significantly changed since you're talking about when those particular set of immigrants that came over and had different economic situations but it's hard to see that as it happens and if you're not politically aware a lot of people do put personal blame personal failure they attribute poverty to to personal failings and they don't see that hey the system has changed for those people what unfortunately you hear and i have heard from family members where they they look at those stories they tell those same stories and then look at new immigrants and say why can't you do that what is what is wrong with you that you can't do that and because our immigrants now tend to be more racialized than they were before because we had terribly racist immigration policies that often prevented them and so they now it reinforces that racism that they've also been taught for a very long time. And it's kind of reaffirming that horrible narrative that they already have going around in their head that folks from other places are less than po- folks that aren't white are less than like that white supremacy still lives in the mind of white people. Right. They've, they've lived and breathed it for their whole lives. And so they they unfortunately it's just like that that fight seems to be getting them to see that it is a systemic problem, that it's capitalism. Right. Right? Getting the commie flyers to them and stuff. It's like, no, no, it's not the immigrants. It's not their fault that they're in this situation. But international students alone. I mean, they literally keep the lights on in post-secondary institutions nowadays. They wouldn't be able to survive a week without international students. God, no. No, our, yeah, our, our universities are going to be really in trouble with the caps that they're putting on international students. They're going to cut the, now, the number that can come over to to study in Canada. And they're also, they've increased the amount of funds that you need to have in order to get here in the first place. So it, immigrants are always treated as like a, a good, a worker, but a good to be traded. And we figure out what kind of goods, what kind of workers we need. And we try to attract them and stuff like that. They're not treated as people. It's not a rights-based approach, but international students, they contribute 3.7 billion in tax revenue. And we're talking about them like they are a drain on the economy. And I don't know how many post-secondary institutions have talked of financial trouble or have filed for bankruptcy and are in declared financial trouble. I can't imagine what it's going to happen when they can't rely on folks paying 10 times the tuition rate. It's a narrative that we definitely have to keep our eye on and try to squash because when you started sneaking into the left and you see the immigration minister, MP Mark Miller, saying he would consider the conservative idea of officially, in policy, tying housing to immigration. It's no longer a narrative. It's it's official. It's they are forever going to be correlated in people's brains. And like, where does that stop? Our state of our health care, people also blame on the same people. And so will they tie, you know, our our level of health care to how many immigrants can come over? And then, you know, we're denying people's freedom of movement, not to mention we're screwing up our labor market. Well, and at the end of the day, too, if they have their way here, like you said earlier, it's not going to result in like more houses being built. Or if they tied it to health care, it's not going to result in better health outcomes. These restrictions that we're putting on immigration are going to have negative impacts across the board for everyone. If we want to take a step step back for a second and take a socialist view for the, from this perspective here, immigrants coming to this country are a hell of a lot closer to the same position that you're in than the people that run this country. Immigrants coming over here to Canada are mostly working class people. They're people coming uh, to just seek a better life, right? We should be accepting them into our movements, into our organizations, into into the fold. 
we shouldn't be, we, why would we want to create this otherization or anything like that? It just boggles my mind sometimes to see people taking positions, like, like you say, some leftists out there taking these positions that are detrimental to their own movement and there's and they're so loud about it. Yeah, like saying I I care more about Canadians than I do immigrants. Like yeah, yeah. That and it, it comes back to our conversations about like nationalism too, because this idea like of a Canadian and that you like yeah no because that that tweet stood out to me the the whole I care more about Canadians than about these other people you know. What the actual fuck? And they're not other people, right? Like, they're not really other people. No. And this is also why in, in our movements, we like we talk about it a lot. We need to be so careful about any type of nationalism. Nationalism is is, is, a, is an evil universally. Like, the, the only time I accept some level of nationalism was when Team Canada is playing <laughs> the soccer. But that's about it. Anything else is, is an you know. But but seriously, like this idea of uh, another people as if, I mean, first of all, and it has to be mentioned. I can't believe we haven't mentioned it so far. Like we're all settlers on indigenous land again. Like this is the literal history of Canada. How many of us are actually indigenous native to this land very very few of us right so now at this moment in time picking and choosing who is a canadian who's not what's acceptable to you what's not and 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 we're the second largest country in the world we have and i know a lot of it's frozen tundra but there is a hell of a lot of undeveloped place in canada we can build whole new cities if we wanted to when was the last time we just built a new city we should be building cities like we have the ability to be building cities. We're not developing Canada to the level that that we should. We can build a sustainable society. Blaming immigrants is I mean it is the most intellectually lazy possible argument and I'm so fucking mad at it. I I, I can't stand and all I can see when people are talking about this, I think of my best friend's head here right now who is who has been in this country for seven years, who is fighting so hard to be able to stay here. And we don't know if we're going to be able to keep him in the country in September. We don't know. So I'm taking it very fucking personally when people say this shit. Like, it is not okay. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.